Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. I'm just going to speak to depression generally. I'm going to use Buddhist practices and principles as a way to approach and understand depression, and at the same time, if you need mental health support, professional mental health support, if you have depression, I highly suggest it. And so what I'm going to be speaking to is the Buddhist understandings of depression. We could start with suffering. In the Four Noble Truths, the second noble truth outlines the cause of suffering. And the cause of suffering is this word tanha. And we talk about repetitive and reactive craving is the cause of suffering. The discourse on this literally says, this is the arising of suffering. It is craving, which is repetitive, wallowing in attachment and greed, obsessively indulging in this and that, craving for stimulation. And so we develop a repetitive pattern in what we do. And this is the acknowledgement of looking at that repetitive pattern. And we also develop other ways of looking at this repetitive, reactive craving. There's something called bhavatanha. And bhavatanha is the craving for existence, the craving for becoming. So I want to become skinnier, or I crave to become this job, or I crave to become this sexy person, or I crave to become this title. And how this craving for becoming and existing in a certain way can lead to suffering. And so as we look at this craving for for, um, greed and attachment... And as we crave all the sex, drugs, rock and roll life has to offer, and we crave to become some certain status, as we look at this as the cause of suffering, if you're anything like me with depression, it's like sweet. And I can dismiss pleasure so hard because in depression, there is something that we have called anhedonia. So anhedonia is like the root is hedonic, that people that... um, want to feel pleasure all the time. And anhedonia is, is something that comes along with every type of depression. Anhedonia is when you can't really sense pleasure. You can't really feel pleasure. And so somebody like me, that I, I live with depression, the second noble truth is quite confusing to me because it's like, yeah, I don't feel pleasure. I'm not into pleasure. I'm not craving pleasure all the time. Why am I still suffering? And the Buddha Buddha outlined a a third style of craving in this second noble truth that I feel like is made for especially us, those ones that aren't addicted to pleasure. It is vibhavatanha, the craving for non-existence. In all the flavors of craving for non-existence, 
I don't want to exist in this room. I don't want to exist in these people. I don't want to exist in my job. I don't want to exist in my relationship. I don't want to exist in life. And I think that really hits home for me. I remember the first time I read that, craving for non-existence. I was like, thank you. Thank you. That is my cause of suffering. Because many times in my life, I've, I've entered this craving for non-existence. In my early 20s, my father recently died. I broke up with a girlfriend, a long-term girlfriend. I, I graduated college and then got a job, and I hated that job. And then I got fired from that job because I was, I was showing up drunk or not at all. And... I had so many feelings inside of me that I didn't know how to be with. So much stress, so much grief, so much sadness. I didn't know how to be with. So what I did was I drank all the time. And my craving for non-existence showed up in my drinking. I wanted to die. The recklessness that came along with my drinking. The fights that came along with my drinking. The, the things I was willing to do. Because... I wasn't that into living. And this pattern started developing. I remember drinking so hard at night, going so hard at night, I'd wake up the next morning pissed that I woke up. Fuck, I didn't die. I would start hitting myself in the head because I was mad that I woke up. So looking at this depression, how it's outlined, that we have our our nervous system. And I want to look at two factors of this nervous system that we have, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. And the sympathetic nervous system is the stress response. It's it's the fight-flight-freeze response. It's the, the function that prepares us for reaction and reactivity. It's, the, it's go time. Sympathetic nervous system. And then the parasympathetic nervous system is the opposite. It is the rest and digest. It is the soothing. It is the calming aspect. It's the way that we reserve energy in that soothingness. So in depression, what happens is Our sympathetic nervous system, the one that's reactive, fight-flight-freeze response, stress response, that one is heightened. And then the parasympathetic nervous system, the one that's rest and digest, the soothing aspect, that's low. And so when we're in this space of a heightened stress response and a a a lesser way to uh, regulate that stress response, what we get is something I like call, to call the fuckets. Everything is too much. Fuck it. So when I was in this space of just pissed that I woke up, mad that I woke up, didn't want to experience life, everything was too much. Going to work, no way. That's way too much. Getting out of bed, exhausting. I'm exhausted. I can't get out of bed. Shaving. This was back in the day before everybody had big beards. I had a huge beard, you know, 
And people were like, whoa, that weird beard. And I was like, oh, it's punk rock, it's punk rock. When it was just, it was just too much for me to keep up natural hygiene. I would go days, maybe weeks, without bathing. It was just too exhausting to get up and go take a shower because my rest and digest was just gone. Stress, stress, stress. And so looking at ways to how to work with this dynamic with, with Buddhist practices, how to work with depression. And one end that we look at are habitual patterns of the mind. When we can use mindfulness to observe the mind. So when we sit in meditation and we focus on the breath and the awareness wanders and we focus on the breath and the awareness wanders, over time we develop this non-attached approach towards the mind. And over time, we take the mind less personal. That when we self-identify with the mind in any way, shape, or form, it creates a lot of stress and confusion and suffering for ourselves. So can we take that observational approach towards the mind when the mind says, I hate you? Can we just notice, oh, that is a thought. You know, last week I talked about this I hate myself thing. That when I was a kid and I loved Nirvana, and I loved Nirvana so much they only had certain albums out, that me and my dad would go to these shady record shops and I'd buy bootlegs of Nirvana albums. And one time I was uh, shopping for these bootlegs and I looked at the back of the CD and it said uh, a song by Nirvana, I Hate Myself and I Want to Die was the name of the song. And while that's, you know, a pretty shocking title, it was validating for me to go, yeah, it's okay to have that thought. So sometimes when we have a way to validate and understand a thought as a thought, and it's okay to have uh, certain ideations, certain self-hatred, it's okay. It is a thought, it is a habitual pattern of the mind. So knowing a thought as a thought and not self-identifying with it so much. Helps us get this dislodged, I like to say, that we believe every thought we think when we believe our thoughts. But as soon as we observe a thought as a thought, it dislodges a little bit. And then from there on out, we have our options. On one end, we can create a new habit in the mind. So when we have hatred in the mind, observing the antidote to that is loving kindness. And doing formal loving kindness meditation is something I've taken on for years. Just sitting with myself, wishing that, may I be at ease, may I be at peace, may I be kind and gentle with myself, may I be filled with loving kindness. And the Buddha taught what one frequently thinks about and ponders upon will become the inclination of the mind. So I spent years inclining my mind towards self-hatred. You know, whatever seeds you plant, that is the fruit you'll have. And I've been planting seeds of self-hatred. And now I have hate fruit. So now I want to plant seeds of loving kindness. And I have had more fruit of loving kindness. And this is the other end of this e. Like, contemplating ease is so good for that rest and digest parasympathetic nervous system. 
Because as stress arises, we have the capacity to hold it more. When we ponder upon and incline this hard mind towards ease. And really stepping this up in the game. Not just thinking nice thoughts. That's, that's good, just think nice thoughts and incline the mind in that way. But I remember I was working with my teacher, the Venerable Paniwadi, and I was talking to her about my loving kindness practice, and I was like, I'm just like miserable, and I'm just sitting here like, may I be ease, may I be ease, may I be ease. And she said, step it up, sing songs to yourself, dance, have fun, smile at yourself. And I've taken this on. Uh, we canceled the retreat, but those who've been on retreat with me know I sing during the retreat. I think the loving kindness raises because it kind of sweetens it up and makes it a little easier. May you be filled with loving kindness. May you be well. May you be peaceful and at ease. May you be happy. And having that sweet melody with it, because that's what my teacher would sing to me. Having that sweet melody to it eases me up a little bit. And the more I, I, I meditate on that feeling, may you be happy. I sing that to myself as much as I can. And it provides that ooh, ease. So as the stress comes up, I can meet it. May you be happy. And I can hold this with a little bit more length rather than, fuck it, oh, this is exhausting. Oh. May you be filled with loving kindness. May you be well. And working towards that over and over again. And then the other end is compassion. Compassion is loving kindness straight towards the pain. It's the heart's response to pain. So like I said that I had a, I had a death and, and a breakup and a identity change for that matter, a lot going on in my life that was shifting. And that pain, the only way I knew how to be with it was pushing it out and getting rid of it and hating it. But the wise way to be with pain is compassion. So it takes time over time to wait this out a little bit and be with this pain compassionately. There's a story uh, I, I some of you may have heard that I was on retreat a few years ago and I was going through this depression and the buckets were just there. Oh, so I was like, okay, I'm going to go to this retreat. I'm going to work on this a little bit. And on this retreat there, uh, I was much younger than everybody. Like everybody was, you know, much older than me, seemed much more put together, they were nice to each other, they were like hippies and kind, and I was like weird and young and didn't feel like I belonged there. And on this retreat, there was this uh, older guy, but he was also like really handsome, and he, people loved him, and he was so nice. He had this long flowing hair, like, gold, uh, uh, like silver hair, I, I thought of him as like the silver fox, that this older, handsome silver fox. And I hated his fucking guts, you know? 
And he was just like, show me the working meditation, show me where to sit. And just everything that he did was nice. And I was like, oh, fuck this guy. It was just like something in me just didn't like him because he was so awesome and I sucked. And when we sat in meditation, we sat in this kind of like a circular square thing. And of course, when I'm sitting in meditation, he sits right across from me. So this whole retreat, I'm just left with this like self-hatred shame and this hatred towards the silver fox. And I was just like, oh, you know, fuck this, fuck that. And then it just kept on growing. Like I hated everybody on the retreat because they were better than me. And I, you know, they were meditating better than me and their postures were so much better than me. And oh, oh, I hate this, I hate this. And until one day, it was getting towards the end of the retreat that it was raining. And in the place they rented out for this retreat, uh, there was taxidermy on the wall. And uh, I was like, what who the fuck does a Buddhist retreat with taxidermy on the wall? That's so, that's not the precepts. That doesn't, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm a self-righteous vegan, so I've been, you know, I'm like, oh, this is terrible. And as I was doing this walking meditation inside, and I kept on walking towards the wall that had the taxidermy head on it, and I was just angry, pissed, mad, walking. And then I'd walk away, and then I'd walk towards it, and then walk away, just back and forth. And underneath this taxidermy head was a plaque that said, Killed by Mike Malley, 1997. Fuck Mike, you know? I'm like mad at Mike, mad at this retreat, mad at the Silver Fox, I'm mad at everybody. And the more I just like sat with that, you know, having compassion for this mind that's just agitated, I I just stopped because I was crying. And I was just looking up at this dead deer head and just crying, looking at this dead deer head. Why? I don't know. There was something in me that needed to come out. And as I started crying, I felt this release. This is a beautiful release that just was bottled up with my self-hatred, bottled up with my fuck it, bottled up with my agitation. And the more I could just get to whatever's underneath, all of that loathing, all of that despair, and just go, release. And then that sadness just poured through me and it just felt so good and I imagine the sight that people saw this young tattooed guy crying looking at a deer as they're you know (laughs) coming together and after the retreat we broke silence and we were in a circle and we were sharing about our retreat and right next to me was this uh older hippie woman like she literally had tie-dye on and as we were talking about oh our experience with the retreat I thanked everybody say thank you for letting me hate you all retreat thank you especially to the silver fox because you're so awesome and I realized it's my mind it's not actually you and I told this story about you know crying with the the dead deer and all of that and like oh like working with this agitation and this hatred and just seeing it and being with it being compassionate towards whatever was hiding underneath it, this hippie lady next to me just started crying (laughs) because 
it was my, I, my own self-hatred and hatred of others was validated. She was like, me too. I didn't know we could say that out loud. Thank you. And she, she, uh, she and I had a beautiful bond after that. We went out for coffee after that. And we talked. We're both in recovery. We both had so much in common. And as my mind was just othering her so hard. But to realize we were so much the same. It was so beautiful in this moment. That brought us to a place of connection over some of our inner turmoil. So compassion is a wonderful antidote to put this depression in remission because it sets aside our defenses of hate, aversion, craving for non-existence. And another one is this anhedonia that I speak of that it's hard for us to experience pleasure. And having a a certain amount of understanding of that, it's okay. So many times in life that I I, I was at um, a birthday party with some friends the other day, and they're goofy, they're having a blast, they're dancing, they're doing all this stuff. And we took time to check in because, you know, we're Buddhists and shit like that. So we took the time to check in at the party, and I said, thank you. Thank you for not forcing me to dance or forcing me to be anything that's, like, inauthentic. That I was just cool sitting in the corner just talking to whoever's in front of me. And I don't have to be all, ooh, you know. It's okay. It's totally fine. And having that acceptance to that. And then the other end is appreciating the smallness of pleasure is really helpful for me. So the heart quality of appreciation, that is really hard for any human to see pleasure. We're working with that so-called negativity bias. There's a story Ajahn Chah had. Now there's two farmers. This isn't a vegan story, but there's two farmers. One's a smart farmer, one's a dumb farmer. And the smart farmer wakes up in the morning, he goes, takes takes care of the chickens, and he takes their eggs. And he makes an omelet for his family, and his family gets to eat an omelet, and they have a great time. The other farmer, he goes to take care of the chickens, and he uh, takes the chicken shit. And he takes this chicken shit and puts it on the table for his family. And Ajahn Chah says, don't be a shit collector. Because that's kind of what we are, aren't we? Aren't we like shit collectors as humans? Because we are inclined to see the shit not the beauty. That it takes around one second, maybe even less, to store a harmful memory, a negative memory. But it takes around 12 seconds to store a positive, happy, friendly memory. So we're working against our biology here, even non-depressed people. That we're inclined to be shit collectors. So we got to remember that. That's actually been a mantra to me. Don't be a shit collector. You know, when, I, when I'm thinking, you know, whatever figuratively, like I'm like, you know, back to the silver fox, oh, fuck that guy. Don't be a shit collector. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ajahn Chah, all these years ago that left us this mantra. Look for the beauty in life. Look for the fun in life. And it doesn't have to be exuberant. It could be just like your morning cup of coffee. Oh, pleasant. That's quite pleasant. Enjoyment. Enjoying the cup of coffee. It could be just sitting with friends meditating. Oh, that's quite pleasant. Hearing a song. I love music again. For a while, 
you know, it gets me quite emotional even talking about it. There was a long time in my life I couldn't, I couldn't enjoy music. And now it's just, it's back. And it feels so great to hear a song and just love it. So really, you know, looking for the, the fun, the pleasantness in small pieces and let it grow is a wonderful antidote to depression. And I want to end on what I really think was key for me that I don't feel like is talked about that much. It is devotion. That's what really did it for me, devotion. When I was going through my early 20s and that depression and through some really silly events, I, I know some of you know the silly events that happened, but really strange events happened that Buddhism entered my life. And it was a very traditional, uh, I sat with monks and nuns and we chanted a lot. We sat in meditation, we lit incense, I, I took on traditional precepts. I was given a dharma name. You know, I was all of this very uh, traditional aspects of Buddhism that really was set out for awakening. And my devotion to awakening really changed this. In our, our study series we did over COVID, uh, we, we, it was called Living the Dharma. And we had different teachers come visit us through Zoom to teach this program. And one of the teachers is this guy, Yang O. And Yang O taught on chanting and devotional practices. And one thing he said to me really stuck out. There's this word namo, namo. And it's in the chant, you may hear homage to the Buddha. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhasa. That is paying homage to the Buddha when you say that. But he said this word namo that we normally call homage really is rooted in the returning of my life. I've been wanting to return my life for a very long time. I want to go up to the store clerk and says, this sucks, you can have it back. I return this life. And so rather than returning my life and, and, and drinking and wanting to die and, and reckless behaviors, I return my life to this Dharma practice. And that's really what did it for me. When he said that, I was like, that's exactly what I did all those years ago. I gave my life up for something. In my own hands, it's a mess. Paying homage, dedication, returning my life to the practice, returning my life to the Dharma in a very diligent way, it saved my fucking life. I wake up every day. I just chant. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Buddham saranam gachami. Dhammam saranam gachami. 
Sangam saranam gachami Dutiyampi udam saranam gachami Dutiyampi damang saranam gachami Dutiyampi sangam saranam gachami Tatiyampi udam saranam gachami Tatiyampi damang saranam gachami Tatiyampi sangam saranam gachami Every morning, that's my devotion. Why am I living this life? It's to return it to the Buddha, to the Dharma, to the Sangha. And it's a beautiful way to live. The depression comes back every once in a while. It, it is the mud that grows the lotus now. It is the invitation to return back to this homage, to this practice for me. So, so yeah, thank you for being here and supporting my practice. And uh, hopefully this gives you something to return your life to as well.